Galatians chapter 3. In particular, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 26. 15 through 26. So if you haven't been with us before, this is, uh, this is the way we almost always preach the word on Sundays in the gathering. It's just moving through Bible books. So we pick, pick a book, and we start at the beginning, and we move all the way through. It does a couple of things. Keeps all those passages in context. Hugely significant. Easy to take Bible verses out of context. We've all seen that happen. We've all done that at times. Preaching, it's called ex- expository preaching. Helps to keep you from taking verses out of context. It also means we have to deal with all of God's Word. So the difficult parts we can't just avoid because we're just working through the Bible book. So here we are in Galatians. We're about midway through. And this morning we're in verses 15 through 26. There's sort of a bare-bones outline on the back of the handout, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on. Maybe write something down you think is helpful, but you can look at that as, as we move through the sermon. Galatians 3, 15 through 26. Uh, when we lived in Maine, which was a very different climate from here, I had to buy sunscreen a few weeks ago because I was sitting outside. I had to put sunscreen on in February. I didn't tell our brothers and sisters in Maine that. That would push them, I think, beyond the, beyond the break, but... It's very different here. Well, in Maine, Jude, one of our sons, our oldest son, he, uh, he had an inhaler. And he'd ha- he would have to take that inhaler every day for respiratory stuff in Maine in that climate. He had to do that for, for three seasons of the year. The summertime, he didn't have to do it. But he had to do it fall, winter, and, and spring. And I remember that first year where he did it, and we got to the date where the doctor said, the pediatrician said, okay, you don't have to take the inhaler anymore after this date. And that night we're about to go to bed, and he says, oh, I need, I need my inhaler. And me and Maria were able to say, well, no, you don't. You know, the, the job of the inhaler is, is finished, you know, at, at least for now. You don't, you don't need it anymore. Well, that's what our passage this morning teaches us about the Mosaic Covenant. And you might hear that phrase and think, okay, that rings a bell. Or you might hear that, and you might think, I've never heard that before in my life. So the Mosaic Covenant was the agreement that the Lord handed down to his people Israel. So you remember, they're rescued out of Egypt in the Exodus, and then Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, he's given the Ten Commandments, and then the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah, the law in Hebrew. And so Exodus on is basically just an explanation of those Ten Commandments. So it's giving particular examples of how they're used, other laws that go along with them, That's the Mosaic Covenant. It's the law that God gave to his people after he rescued them out of Egypt. And again, a covenant, that's an important term. You see that all throughout scripture. A covenant, that's just an agreement that God hands down that's between he and his people. And we are given certain responsibilities in the covenant. And then he makes certain promises to his people in those covenants. And there's lots of covenants that you see throughout scripture. There's two of them that Paul is dealing with in our passage this morning. And he's contrasting them with one another. The Mosaic Covenant, which is what I just explained, and the Abrahamic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant, part of it, uh, was read just a a little while ago, Ramon, in in the Old Testament reading. So that shows up first in Genesis 12, and then it sort of comes out again in 15 in chapter 17 in Genesis 22. So that's the promise that God made to Abraham that Paul's mentioned a few times in Galatians. Those are the two covenants that Paul is talking about in our passage this morning. You can see in verse 16, he's talking about the covenant that God makes with Abraham. He names him. And then in verse 17, he takes us 430 years afterwards, which gets us to Moses on Mount Sinai. So these are the two covenants that he's talking about. Now, before we move on, let's remember 
the argument that's been happening in Galatians. What's the point of Galatians? What's Paul been saying? Well, in chapter 2 and 3, his main point is justification in God's eyes. So God looking at us and considering us innocent, considering our sins forgiven, us becoming his children, that doesn't happen because of us being good or our character development or our humility or anything in us. No, that justification takes place through our connection with Jesus. It's all his abilities. It's all his character. It's his good works. We're given his righteousness, and we're connected to him, not through us striving and working hard, but through faith alone. That's what chapter 2 and chapter 3 have been all about. But these false teachers, remember that's why Paul's writing this letter against these false teachers. They had been telling these young Christians, no, that's not true. Justification, being made right in God's eyes, it comes through faith in Christ plus some good works. And you remember, they really focused on circumcision. You need to have the males of your household circumcised, as well as keeping some other parts of the Old Testament law. But they said, you've got to have both. Well, you remember the last passage that we preached through, they had pointed to Abraham. And these false teachers had said, well, Abraham got circumcised, and he circumcised Isaac, and that was part of what we're supposed to do. And remember, Paul kind of, he dispensed with that argument pretty quick by pointing out that Abraham was justified by God before that circumcision happened. So no justification came by faith alone. He dispensed with that argument really quick. But the false teachers, they wouldn't have just appealed to Abraham. They also would have pointed to the Mosaic Covenant. And they would have said, well, wait, this law that Israel received that includes being circumcised, that was given by God. So who is this guy, Paul, to say that you don't have to get circumcised to be saved? Because God says the opposite. God has given this law. So that's sort of the pushback here. That's what Paul is responding to. And it's a good question. You know, what does Paul say about that? What should we as Christians think about the Mosaic law? How does it, how does it relate to us? Is it still in effect? Are we as Christians still under the Mosaic covenant? Well, Paul's answer to, to that question is no. The Mosaic covenant is no longer in effect. Its work is finished. So with that understanding, hear the word of the Lord, Galatians 3, 15 through 26. Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
Okay, now, now the way we'll look at the passage this morning is to let Paul explain this doctrine or this truth. We'll let him explain it to us, and then we'll look at the applications of the passage to us. Two applications in particular. So, we'll start with the doctrine, which is simply the Mosaic Covenant's work is finished. That's the main idea here. Paul's going to support it with four main arguments. You'll see it listed there in the outline. So, first... Paul makes it clear in this passage that the Abrahamic covenant was a promise, and that promise isn't pushed aside or ignored or annulled by the Mosaic covenant. Now, right off the bat, we need to remember the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, they are mutually exclusive. They are two different paths. They go in two different directions. They're they're both ways of receiving the blessing of salvation, but you can't follow them both at the same time. That's what we saw a few weeks ago. So, The Abrahamic covenant was a covenant based on the gospel. The gospel of justification by faith alone. Salvation by trust in God apart from works. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Look back at verse 7 of chapter 3. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, it's part of the Abrahamic covenant, It's the gospel, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So see, the covenant given to Abraham was based on the gospel. The fact that Abraham had a righteous standing in God's eyes, the fact that God overlooked his sins, they were forgiven, that's because not Abraham had good works, but because Abraham trusted in the Lord. It was by faith alone. But see, the Mosaic covenant given to Israel was fundamentally different. The pathway was a different path. Look up at verse 12 of chapter 3. Paul summarizes the path that the law gives, verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Okay, so we could summarize it this way. So the Abrahamic covenant says, become right with God through faith alone. That's what the Abrahamic covenant says. The Mosaic covenant says, try to become right with God through your own deeds. Those are two fundamentally different things, like oil and water, right? Like north and south. You can't go both ways at the same time. You have to pick one direction. These are fundamentally two different paths to salvation that these covenants are holding out. And Paul's point here is that the Abrahamic covenant takes priority. And that's what he's going to show us. And and that starts with him pointing out the Abrahamic covenant is built on a promise. In fact, that word promise, it shows up in our passage seven times. And when you're reading scripture, that's always a helpful thing to do. If you're studying the Bible, the passage you're looking at, see if words show up multiple times. Because that's the author focusing your attention there. You know, they didn't have, when they're writing, they, they didn't have underline. They didn't have italics, you know. They didn't have bold font. No, the way that they would, that they would uh, put weight on something was to repeat a word oftentimes. So this word promise shows up seven times. God, God's making sure we understand the covenant he made with Abraham is characterized, first and foremost, by it being a promise. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Look at the end of verse 18. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now you might think, okay, well wait, but aren't all God's covenants promises? And that's true. 
to a degree, it's God standing behind his words and saying this thing is true. But all covenants aren't promised to be effective. God doesn't stand behind all covenants and say, and you will follow these stipulations to where this covenant will actually work for you. And in particular, the Mosaic covenant given to Israel, God never promised that covenant would actually save them. So that's how the Mosaic covenant is not a promise. It was God's word, certainly, but he never promised it would be effective. He, he tells Israel how somebody could hypothetically be saved by the Mosaic covenant, what the stipulations are, but he never tells them anyone will actually be saved by it. So it's kind of like when we're going to Target sometimes, and my kids will say, hey, here's this toy that's probably going to be there, which is undoubtedly a toy that they want is going to be, I don't know, $20, $30, something like that. And they'll say, could I maybe get this toy? And it's probably because I don't take them to Target that often, and so they figure I might as well cast the die and just see if maybe dad will say yes. And so I'll say no. And then oftentimes, Jude in particular does this, he'll say, what if it's $2? And I'll say, okay, yeah, if that $30 Lego set is $2, we will buy that Lego set. But I know we're not going to walk out of the store with that Lego set, because I know that $30 Lego set is not going to be $2, right? So we can say yes to the hypothetical game, because we know it's not going to be the reality game. Well, God knows that someone would be innocent in his eyes if they followed all the stipulations of the Old Covenant. If they followed all the commands, if they were pure the way the Mosaic Covenant called on his people to be pure. But he also knows no human is going to be able to do that. He knows it's not going to happen. And he makes that pretty clear to Israel in the Old Testament. So listen to what he has Joshua say to Israel before they come into the Promised Land. This is Joshua 24, 19 through 20. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. So Joshua basically tells the people, listen, we all know we're going to blow this. And because of the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant, God's not going to be able to just sweep these sins under the rug. He commands us to not do these particular things because he's holy. We're going to do a lot of these things. So Joshua just comes out and tells them that. We see the same type of thing I don't know if you noticed this, but at the end of the book of Leviticus, uh, Moses is giving blessings and cursings for obedience and disobedience. So you can look at that chapter this afternoon. I think it's chapter 26. So he says, Israel, if you obey the Mosaic Covenant, here's the blessings you'll get. And there's a little section on that. But then he says, if you disobey, here's all the cursings you'll get. And if you look at that section, it's about four times as long as the blessing section. It's really, really clear that God, speaking through Moses, understands they're going to break the covenant. He gives the blessing section, but it's pretty slight. He understands that what we're going to be dealing with is cursing because he knows his people will disobey the law. He knows that because of our makeup, because we're sinners, that we would not fulfill it. So that's the Mosaic covenant. But see, the Abrahamic covenant was different. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Again, the end of verse 18. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Look back at chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would will justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. God made promises to Abraham that this covenant would actually be effective. That people would actually get saved. That blessing really would come, not through obeying the law, but through hearing the gospel and believing. He tells him it will be effective. Those proclamations, they weren't conditional the way, the way they were in the Mosaic Covenant. They weren't based on Abraham's performance. No, just like your relationship with God, they came through God's promise. The promise that if you believe in the gospel, you'll be saved. And so regardless of what the Mosaic Covenant is doing, it's definitely not overturning God's initial promises to Abraham. That's Paul's point here. So when these false teachers would say that salvation comes through faith in Christ plus works, these young Christians are supposed to recognize that that, that would be, in the words of verse 15, that would be annulling, overturning the promise to Abraham. And God doesn't go back on his promises. So that's the first thing Paul points out. The Abrahamic covenant, the gospel, is based on a promise. But not only was the Abrahamic covenant a promise, whereas the Mosaic covenant was not, the Abrahamic covenant was a promise God made a long time before the Mosaic covenant. This is the second thing Paul points out to us. The promise was made a long time before the Mosaic covenant. Look at verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So not only did God give Abraham this promise, he also made that promise 430 years before the Mosaic covenant. So God's promise of the gospel, his, his promise that a relationship with him would be established by faith alone, apart from works, that promise had been firmly established for 430 years by the time of the Mosaic Covenant, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the law. One of my earliest food memories is hating egg salad. I remember my mom making egg salad and me not even wanting to be in the house because the smell was so offensive. Like, not even to mention the taste. A lot of you might not like that because you love egg salad, and that's fine. I'm sure the Lord is fine with that. But I remember hating egg salad. I remember that from at least the age of four. So that means I have a track record now, 37 years of hating egg salad. I'm not going to love egg salad tomorrow. Know that it's been established, right? This pattern is secure. At the time of the giving of the law, God's promise to Abraham had been established for 430 years. He wasn't going to change his mind. And not only that, but by the time Paul is writing to the Galatian Christians, that promise to Abraham established for 2,000 years. Us, being reminded about the Abrahamic covenant and the gospel this morning, it's been established for 4,000 years. That's a long time. That's how long it's been firm, established. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God as to make the promise void. So the promise was made a long time before the Mosaic covenant. But there's something even more significant about the promise. Something that should give us even more confidence that it takes precedence over the Mosaic covenant. And that is, the Abrahamic covenant was a promise made directly by God to Jesus. This is something. 
something that it's easy to forget about, but the text is clear on this point. The Abrahamic covenant, a promise made directly by God to Jesus. For, for a contrast, let's start there. Look at how the Mosaic law was given. Verse 19. He says, why then the law? Talking about the Mosaic covenant. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it, the law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, before we get into the weeds of what this is talking about, we, we should recognize just for a second, this verse reminds us that the God of the universe is a single God. So he's clear on this point. God is one. We have one God. It's just like Israel would recite back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, it's important to always hold that in mind because remember, just like we see all over the New Testament, we saw back in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus the Son is God. Okay, so we've got the Son, who's God. We've got the Father, who's God. We've also got the Spirit, who's God. But like this verse just reminded us of, but God is one. There's only one God. Listen to, uh, to Article 2 in our church's Confession of Faith where we summarize Scripture on this point. We say, We believe that there is one and only one living and true God, but that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have a God who exists in three persons, but we always have to remember he is one God. Now, now that pushes our brains past what they can do. And that's okay. It's actually good. It's actually a sign that the Christian religion wasn't created by men. Man-made religions make sense, right? So in Islam, there's one God and he's a simplistic God. There's no texture there like in Christianity. There's no, there's no trinity. In fact, they think the idea of the trinity is crazy. That, that's sort of the sort of earmarks of a man-made religion, right? There's mystery in this. It pushes our brains past understanding, at least not fully understanding. There was a pastor in North Africa named Augustine. He ministered in the 5th century, wrote lots of uh, all sorts of good stuff about the gospel and scripture. And here's how he says it. He says, we are speaking of God. Is it any wonder if you do not comprehend? For if you comprehend... It's not God you comprehend. To attain some slight knowledge of God is a great blessing. To comprehend him, however, is totally impossible. So see, that's true, isn't it? So as limited creatures, we simply hold on to all the truths God presents. Even though there's sometimes where our little brains can't synthesize those things, that's okay. There's a lot of mystery in the Lord, but we hold on to this. Three persons and yet one God. He makes that clear here. Okay, back to verse 19. So he says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it, the law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an inter intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Okay, so, so what's he talking about here? Well, it's actually something that we would not know simply by reading the accounts of the giving of the law in the Old Testament. It's something that we sort of get a glimpse of in Acts chapter 7, and then get another glimpse of, Paul kind of makes it more plain here. So you might remember, but there's this deacon named Stephen who's preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 7. 
And this is what he says. Listen to what he says about the giving of the law. He says, you, Israel, you received the law as delivered by angels. So, so it looks like what's happening behind the scenes during the giving of the law, we understand the part where God gives it to Moses and he gives it to Israel. But it turns out there was this extra layer in there. There was this other party of people involved in, well, not people, this party of angels, that was involved in the giving of the law. So here's how it works. And we find this out again from Acts 7 and Galatians. So God, it looks like, gives the law to angels. They give the law to Moses. Moses gives the law to Israel. So when it says an intermediary, that's where it's talking about Moses. He finally gives the law to Israel. So several parties that it takes to get God's word to God's people. Okay, now hold that in your head. Now listen to what happens with the Abrahamic covenant. How that covenant was different. Listen to how the promise came to him. This is Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever, and I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Okay, you can see how different those two situations are. The giving of those covenants. So Mosaic covenant, God has his law. He gives it on a mountain. He gives it to angels. They give it to Moses. Moses gives it to the people. With the promise, God comes directly to Abraham. So the Mosaic Covenant is almost a way that two corporations would deal with one another, where they've got lawyers going back and forth, and maybe there's a mediator there. That's the Mosaic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant is like a father speaking to his son. It's very different. It was a direct promise to Abraham, but there's more than that, like we talked about earlier. It wasn't just a promise made to Abraham. Verse 16 now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. My offspring is calling to me now. So if we just had that verse and to his offspring, we think, okay, I understand what this means. God promised it to Abraham, and then he promised it to Abraham's descendants, right? So his physical descendants in a way, but then Paul makes it clear. Abraham's true descendants are those who trust in Christ. So I bet that's what Paul is talking about here. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He gets even more specific. He makes it clear that God was always prophesying about somebody more particular than just Abraham's general descendants. Paul tells us, verse 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. Okay, so God primarily has one person in mind with this Abrahamic covenant. Now, what Paul's pointing out here, we should back up a little bit, is that there's this word offspring. You might know this, but the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so what Paul points out is that word offspring in Hebrew, it could be singular, offspring, or it could be plural, offsprings. Now, I didn't do it well, as well in Hebrew as I did in Greek, but I do remember that offspring plural was two extra Hebrew word, uh, uh, letters. That was the only difference. The words looked just like English words, looked remarkably similar, the singular and the plural. It's a difference of two letters. Now, here's what we need to notice. Before we move on to the argument, we need to notice something. The argument Paul's about to make, it hangs on the difference of two Hebrew letters. The difference between singular offspring and plural offsprings. What that means is 
Paul really trusts that the Bible contains the exact words that God wants. Because he's about to hang the entire argument on the presence or absence of two letters. There's this idea, it's been around for a few hundred years, but you hear it especially today. There's this idea that the Bible maybe is right in the big ideas, but it still has errors in it. There's still things that are wrong about it. And so our job is to kind of pick through it and decide what the right things are and what the wrong things are. You might remember this. Thomas Jefferson had the Thomas Jefferson Bible, which was basically just the Gospels minus the verses that Thomas Jefferson didn't like. (laughs) So he just cut out those, and then he left the ones that he liked. That's not the Bible. The Bible is true. All of it. Every bit of it is true because it's all God's Word. It doesn't contain any errors, not in the big things, not in the small things. And the good news for us as Christians is that means you can trust it. You can trust God's word. It will never lead you astray ever. It is right about everything all the time to the point where Paul knows he can rest an argument on the presence or absence of two letters because he knows those two letters were put there on purpose by the Lord and God never says anything wrong. Okay, so, so what's Paul getting at here? What's the purpose of the argument? Why is it significant that in the promises God gave Abraham in Genesis, he uses the singular word for offspring, not the plural? Well, again, it's because God's promise was always aimed at a particular individual, a single person. Middle of verse 16, it does not say into offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. God's promise to Abraham 4,000 years ago was primarily a promise to Jesus Christ. Now, that's an incredible thing. The gospel wasn't only promised to Abraham. It was also promised to God's son. Listen to Luke chapter 1, verse 32. These promises God makes to Jesus. Luke 1, 32, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So the promise that God would grow Abraham into a huge group of people, give them a kingdom, bless the world through them, all of that first and foremost is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the target of those promises. Now, the rest of us as Christians, we understand this. We benefit through those promises. They become ours but they've become ours through our connection to Jesus, who was the primary person God was making those promises to. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, it's Christ, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. This verse says the same thing as verse 16. When God made the promise to Abraham 430 years before the law was given, It was first and foremost a promise made to Jesus. And if there is one person who you can count on God not reneging on a promise, it's to his son. And the promise of the gospel was made to Christ. This again shows the Abrahamic covenant is fundamentally different than the Mosaic covenant. The law covenant, that was a conditional, contractual agreement handed down from God to angels, to Moses, to Israel. The Abrahamic covenant at its core is a promise given directly from the Father to the Son, Jesus Christ. We can count on that. We know that's permanent. The gospel isn't going anywhere. So again, these false teachers, they were saying the Mosaic covenant was still in effect. 
But Paul's made it so clear, hasn't he, that that's not the case. Because that would undo the promise made by God, not only to Abraham, but to Jesus, and made 430 years before the Mosaic Covenant. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. But now, that all begs the question, well then why did God give the law to Israel? You know, we've just seen in all these points, okay, the Abrahamic covenant takes priority. That's the gospel covenant. That's the one that fits with us. The promise God has made for the gospel for us, faith through Christ alone to gain salvation. Okay, so God gave that promise back in Genesis 12. Then why the law? That's the question that Paul is going to answer for us now. And what he makes clear is the Mosaic Covenant always had a temporary purpose. It always had a temporary purpose, which was to show sin and to lead to Christ. That was the purpose of the law. Look at verse 19 and following. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. That's another word for sin. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Okay, so the Mosaic Covenant was always meant to be temporary. Again, it does two things. Shows us our sin, brings us to Christ. So the first thing it was designed to do, show sinners how sinful we are. It's the first thing Paul says in verse 19. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. I think the New Living Translation says it really helpfully. It says the law was given to show people their sins. It's just like the passage we read earlier in the congregational reading in Romans 7, where Paul says, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet, you know, to sinfully desire something. If God hadn't told me in his law, don't covet. But that's what the Mosaic Covenant was designed to do, to show us how often our desires and thoughts and actions are actually sinful. But, but it does more even than that. It doesn't just point out sin to us. The law actually aggravates our sinful nature. Now, that's not the law's fault. That's our fault. So when sinners meet the law and the law says don't do something, our sinful nature is spring-loaded to say, oh, I want to do that thing. And you don't have to look any further than just looking at a toddler to see this work, you know? So oftentimes with our kids when they're little, if you say, hey, don't do this, well, for a lot of kids, that's the motivation to do that thing. They were fine to not do it until you told them they shouldn't do it. But see, that's human nature. This is Romans chapter 7, verse 8. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, Paul says. Isn't that a horrible thing? 
God gives us his good commands, and not only do we transgress and break them as sinners, but our sinful flesh actually wants to do even worse. When we see God's command, it makes us, in our sinful nature at least, even more want to transgress. What a horrible thing for us to do, but that's who we are apart from Christ. We're so depraved in that way. It's so, it's so evil. That's who we are at our core apart from Jesus. And the law of God came to show us that. The Mosaic law was to show God's people, you're hopeless. You're too sinful to get to the Lord by your own power. Look at the kind of language Paul uses to describe that reality. The law comes, it shows us we're sinful. Look at the language, how he describes it. In verse 22, he says, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Verse 23 says the same thing. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned. So the picture is that as God's law shows you your sins, it's making clear that you're a lawbreaker. And lawbreakers deserve death. We deserve judgment. So the law is like a judge who orders you to be kept in jail until you can publicly be shown to be guilty and receive your punishment. That's like the law. The law is that police officer that escorts you from the courtroom in handcuffs and puts you in a prison cell. It imprisons us in our guilt. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned. Now, why would God do that? Why, why would he give the Mosaic Covenant all these laws to his people? Why would he do that when he knows all the law can do is show them how short they fall and that it would increase their sinfulness and that at the end of the day, it would just end up convicting them of their guilt? What's well, the same reason that a surgeon tells his patient she has cancer? It's so he can treat it. That's what the law does. It's so that God can treat the illness that the law points out in us. That's what the Mosaic Covenant was designed to do. It points out sin to the sinner. It's like a cancer screening. You pass under the law, and it shows you all the places you have fallen short of God's commands. But praise God, that's, his, that's not his only intention with the law. The Mosaic Covenant shows sin, but it's also designed to lead to Jesus. Look at verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law imprisoned God's people for a purpose. It imprisoned them to get them to Jesus. And in this way, the law was actually designed by God to do the exact opposite of what the false teachers were saying it was supposed to do. So the false teachers were saying the purpose of the law is to justify us, to make us righteous in God's eyes. But what we've just seen is the purpose of the law is actually to show us how condemned we really are. It does the exact opposite and how much we need Jesus. It's designed to point to the one who did what the law could never do, which is to die on the cross in the place for our sins, to cover our guilt before the Lord. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, this is why you should give your life to Christ, that you should say, I'm gonna follow Jesus. 
This is why you should trust in him alone and his work on the cross to pay for your sins because there's no other alternative. <laughs> there's no other way for your sins to be covered. So right now, outside of Christ, you're guilty of all of those sins. And one day, all of us will have to stand before the Lord. Whether we die or Christ comes back first, every one of us will have to stand before the Lord and give an account for our sins. But the Christian gets to point to Christ who covered all of our sins. So consider trusting in the gospel. Consider trusting in Christ. Come talk to me about that if you have questions about that. Talk to another elder here. Shoot me an email. Let's talk about the gospel. It's our only hope. There's no hope apart from Christ. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That's the purpose of God's law. There's this great story during the Protestant Reformation. So most of you are probably familiar with that at least a little bit. That's where in God's kindness, the church sort of reclaimed the gospel. The church for a long time, the majority of the church didn't believe the gospel. In the medieval period, the church lost the gospel. They preached the type of thing the false teachers in Galatia would have been preaching. That, yeah, you need to trust in Christ, but you also need to do these good works. So the Lord raised up these particular men, and they started preaching the Bible. And then Christians began being reminded of what the gospel was and saying, no, our churches need to be built on this. Well, the, the man that the Lord sort of used to start all of that was Martin Luther. So you might remember, he's, he's studying through Romans. He ends up figuring out, oh, the gospel is different than what I thought it was. He starts writing and preaching about that. And the church at the time, the Catholic church, was very displeased with Martin Luther. So they basically call him to come and meet with the, the Roman emperor. And the Roman emperor is sort of challenging him. There's all these other teachers from the church that are going to try to make him look silly. And they end up saying to him, you need to recant. You need to say that everything you've written about the gospel is not true. And you might remember this, but this is where Martin Luther says, here I stand. I can do no other. So basically saying, you can do to me whatever you want to do to me, but I can't turn my back on the gospel because I know it's true. So if you've been in my office, that poster that's behind my desk, that's Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, who's standing there with all of his papers in front of him. They're asking him to recant. He says, I can't do it. I can't turn my back on Christ because I know the gospel is true. So anyway, he was basically signing his death warrant. Everybody understood that. So the Roman Catholic Church says, okay, you can go back home now. But everybody thinks he's not going to get back home. The Catholic Church is going to send somebody. The Holy Roman Emperor is going to send somebody. They're going to catch him. They're going to kill him. So he's, uh, he's, he's riding down on horseback. He's got these other guys with him. And all of a sudden, they're surrounded by all these guys on horses that ambush them. And they've got crossbows. And they take Martin Luther. And so everybody thinks, that's it. Martin Luther's gone. But the thing is, that was a friend. That was this wealthy guy who liked Martin Luther and believed the gospel. His name was Frederick the Wise. He sent those guys to kidnap Martin Luther. So it looked like it was bad guys. They take him to this castle where they basically put him in there and nobody sees him to keep him safe. And then he just continues to write. He translates the Bible into German, does all this great work. So it looked like a bad thing, right? Those guys have crossbows. They're taking him captive. They throw him in the carriage. They're marching him away. But it was designed to do good for him. That's the law. That's what the Mosaic Covenant does. It comes to God's people and it grabs us and it throws us in the carriage with crossbows and it marches us away to get us to safety, to get us to Christ. That's what the Mosaic Covenant was always supposed to do. That's what God designed it to do. 
Like verse 24 says, the law was our guardian until Christ came. It gets us to Jesus. But see, what all this means is the Mosaic Covenant's job has been completed. God's people no longer need to be shown their sin and be brought to Jesus because the Christian has seen his sin and he's already come to Christ. Look again at how Paul points out the temporary nature of the law. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come, Jesus, to whom the promise had been made. It's like the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. He says, in speaking of a new covenant in Christ, he makes the first one, the law covenant, the Mosaic covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The, the Mosaic covenant, it was like scaffolding that's put up when they're constructing a building. But once that building's constructed, do they leave the scaffolding up? No. The scaffolding comes down because it served its purpose. That was the Mosaic covenant. Its work is finished because it's gotten God's people to Jesus Christ. Okay, well, well as we close, that's the doctrine clearly stated. Paul puts it out there in a, a compelling way. But what does that mean for us? Because we never want to hear the word and just walk away being smarter. That's not the design of God's word. No, God's word is designed for us to live differently, for us to put these truths into effect in our daily lives. So what should we do? I think two main things, and these are listed in the worship guide. First of all, let God's law in his word show you your sin. Let God's law in his word show you your sin. The Bible makes clear as Christians, we still continue to sin until we die or Christ returns, all of us. We're still going to sin, so we should let God's law show us our sin. In fact, this would be a good habit to have when you're reading the Bible. So when you read God's command about not coveting, for example, not having sinful desires, take a minute to recognize how often you have had sinful desires in your life and how hopeless you would be if salvation only comes by way of the law. Let yourself feel that rub. Oh, I'd be hopeless. You can tell yourself that when you meet those commands. As you read those passages, you can tell yourself, if I didn't have Jesus, this command would be a death sentence for me. Say that regularly when you're reading those commands, right? Those imperatives, even in the New Testament. If I didn't have Jesus, this command would be a death sentence for me. Again, the Mosaic Covenant was meant to show you your sinfulness and, and to bring you to Christ. Well, every time you read the Bible, you can, you can re-experience the good news of the gospel as you're reminded how sinful you are and how Jesus is your only hope. Let God's law show you your sin. But praise God that for the Christian, none of God's commands for you is a death sentence because the Mosaic covenant is no longer in effect. You're under the new covenant, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Same gospel that God promised to Jesus 4,000 years ago. And and what that gospel says is, as a Christian, you have become God's child. You are justified. You've been adopted. Your sins have all been forgiven, not based on your works, but based on Christ. Your connection to Jesus has come by faith alone. So rejoice. This is the second thing, practically. Rejoice that you're God's child, not based on your works, but based on Christ. You're no longer under God's righteous judgment because Jesus took all of your judgment on your behalf. He took it on the cross. And so the, the law, God's commands don't lead us to despair. They, they lead us to Jesus. 
Before we started dating, Marie and I were part of a group of friends. Uh, we lived in Louisville. We were part of a great church there. And uh, all of our friends were single, so we could basically hang out whenever we wanted to. We'd hang out a lot at nighttime. And, um, and I was starting uh, to be interested in Maria, which was the Lord's kindness to me. And I started, I figured out this trick, because sometimes I'm super smart. And I figured out this trick. I had a bike. And back in those days, I would ride my bike places. And then we had kids, and then I thought, I'm not going to ride a bike and maybe get hit by a car because I love my children. So sold the bike. But for a while, I'd ride my bike. And I figured out this trick where if, if a group of us was hanging out, I could ride my bike to where we were hanging out when it was still light outside. And Maria had an SUV. And I knew that when we hung out and then it was dark, she was going to say to me, don't ride your bike home. Throw your bike in my car, and I will give you a ride back home. And so I started doing that all the time, which again, praise the Lord, pretty smart, right? So there was this unsafe situation, and then out of that unsafe situation, I get this ride with Maria. Okay, that's, that's the gospel. That's the difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. So there's this dangerous situation. The law points that out to us. It's our sin. And then we get this ride with Christ. So the law gets us there to understand our need, and then it's Christ who takes us home. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what Jesus does for us. And so as a Christian, every time you, you disobey your parents or you get sinfully anxious or you're too harsh with your spouse or lazy at work or lustful or envious or sinfully angry, you get to fall back on Christ to cover those sins. So, so rejoice. Like verse 12 makes clear, the law says do this and live, which is an utterly hopeless situation. The law says do this and live, the gospel says, come to Christ and live. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the good news of the gospel. We understand it's not just a platitude. This is a real thing. We have no hope apart from Christ. Father, we would be under your just condemnation. We would deserve that. We're so thankful, Father, that in your mercy you sent your son to die on the cross to take all of our sins on his shoulders and, Father, to provide us with an innocent verdict when he got up and walked out of the grave. We're so thankful that you've brought us close to you through Christ. We pray, Father, that we would always lean on the good news of the gospel. Take a moment to pray silently and individually that the Spirit would press those truths in on your heart. So take a moment now, pray individually and silently that that would be the case.